podcaster passionate about empowering youth to raise their voices and tell their stories. On Global Youth Matters, they tell their stories in their own voices on their own terms. They have faced life challenges, social, emotional, health, physical, economic, political, and more. They've gone through rough times and have come out on the other side. Get ready because they'll blow your mind. I'm going to let them talk because their voices matter on Global Youth Matters. Hi, Nikki. I'm so happy to have you here today. And you're a star in so many ways. And I would love for you to introduce yourself. Hi, Hannah. It's so great to see you again. So I'm Nikki Maxwell. I'm from the UK. I'm 26 years old. I was born in South Africa and my parents are British. They were working in South Africa for about 10 years and moved to the UK when I was three or four years old. I grew up in London and moved to the United States for college when I was 18. And I've been here in the US in various different cities for eight years now, which feels amazing that it's been this long. I came here originally to go to Harvard, where I was a student athlete. I was a member of the the track and field team. I was a sprinter. And after Harvard, I moved originally to LA and then to New York for work. And then a year ago, I moved to Washington, D.C. for graduate school. I am currently a student at Johns Hopkins on their D.C. campus studying international relations. And I met Hannah, you and I met through JTCC playing tennis. So the other big part of my story, reading between the lines, is I am also an amputee. I was born with a congenital condition called fibula hemimelia, which means that my lower right leg didn't develop properly during pregnancy and my leg was amputated when I was about 15 months old. So I've lived my life, my whole life as an amputee and sport has been a a really, really important part of that story from playing rugby growing up to doing track and field athletics and eventually getting involved in, in tennis over the last three or four years. And I think the the last year in particular through JTCC and the experience of getting involved with parasanding tennis, which I hope we'll talk a bit more about, has been a really, really special turn in my life that I didn't particularly see coming. And it was a pleasure to meet you a few weeks ago. Thank you so much for all of that. I think Nikki's quite humble. So I had a chance to sort of research a little bit about your background and see that you're actually quite famous at Harvard. You're the first of a lot of things at Harvard. We can start a little there. (laughs) You're very kind. So I didn't know this at the time until a few months into my freshman year of college. I was the first amputee to compete in Division I track and field in the NCAA. There had actually been other amputees going through college and competing in college sport, but they weren't competing at the varsity level. And I only found this out during my freshman year because I saw a a news article came out that explained the situation, at which point I then had to go and ask my coach about it because he'd been very surreptitiously hiding all of the the process that he'd been through over the summer between leaving school and, and starting at university. That was an amazing, amazing experience. I feel very fortunate still to have had the chance to do that. And alongside my own competition and competitive ambitions, I also was able to work with a few other different organizations and people within the the collegiate sports world to help grow the number of competition opportunities available 
to athletes with disabilities in athletics specifically, but it's it's happily extended to some other sports as well in the, the last few years. Great. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about that and sort of what sports have you worked on and what exactly that means in terms of expanding the sports? Yeah. So right now, or at least until very recently in collegiate sport, if you wanted to be, if you wanted to compete at the collegiate level as an athlete with a disability, your options were very, very limited. The competition pathway from conference level competition to eventually national championships just doesn't include any classifications that accommodate people with disabilities unless they are running times that compete with able-bodied athletes. So some of those exceptional athletes have come through over the years. There's been an athlete running at Arkansas called Hunter Woodhall, who is a Paralympian and he's an amazing, amazing person and a very fast runner. But for the most part, that leaves out anybody that's not running at that world-class uh, or even beyond world-class level. So as a freshman, we were able to organize an exhibition competition attached to conference championships at Princeton, which included a 100-meter race for ambulatory athletes, so athletes who are, are able to run using prosthetic devices or have some form of other disability where they're still able to run. And then there were also a few wheelchair races and some field events for different disability categories as well. So that was the first tournament at the collegiate level that had been dedicated to adaptive athletes. And there were efforts to replicate that in subsequent years and actually transform it into a formal national championship. And they, for various reasons, which we can get into if you'd like to, that ended up not working out. And that was a, a really frustrating time. But what I did find was that last year, the NCAA has agreed now that at their national championships, they're going to start including wheelchair events for track and field, which is a huge breakthrough and major, really, really major step forward. And I'm very hopeful and I believe that in the years to come, that will also start to include more classifications for different types of disabilities, ambulatory athletes like myself. And that same principle, once the model is shown to be successful, and I really believe it will be, it'll extend to other sports as well. And I think the NCAA, which talks about itself as a, an organization that really values inclusion is going to start to live those values a lot more with regard to the disability community. Quite impressive, Nikki. I don't know where you find the time between competing and working on these really important issues, but I wanted to add one more, another achievement. I think you were at the U.S. Open last summer, so maybe you want to tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so tennis is definitely, as anybody who's close to me will tell you, something I am now completely addicted to and spend way too much of my time talking about or playing and I got back into playing I, I'd learned to play when I was little I stopped for about a decade because of athletics and got back into playing after college as I was looking for sport that I could play more recreationally with friends and as it tends to do as I've learned it got more and more serious and I started looking for ways to compete and through a really amazing chain of coincidences I found out about a classification of the sport called para standing tennis so most people if you follow tennis at all will know about wheelchair tennis which has been very successful as growing a, a form of the game for people with disabilities 
and they really have blazed an, an amazing trail. And now they play at the Paralympics, they play at all the Grand Slams, and the field sizes are growing all the time. The challenge with that is that it doesn't include classifications for people who either choose not to or can't use a wheelchair. And so for someone like myself, where I'm, I'm able to play standing, for me, that's the preferred way of playing. And my options under the current system would be to either play with able-bodied players where I'm at a, a physical disadvantage or to play in a wheelchair, which to me is, is, is not the way that I would choose to play. And so I found out through originally through a, a viral Twitter video posted by a journalist called Blair Henley, who covers tennis and happened to be covering an event that they were running in, I think it was at SMU a couple of years ago. And this was a video of some Paris standing players. So a player who was playing with no arms, which is an amazing, <laughs> amazing thing. It's hard to believe that tennis can be played with no arms, but it's possible. And the video went viral and I sent a direct message to the journalist asking what the backstory was and who was responsible for the tournament. I didn't expect her to respond. She did and not only responded, but put me in touch with the organizers of the tournament who then introduced me to the staff at JTCC who happened to be half an hour away from where I now live. So it was just an unbelievable series of coincidences. And JTCC runs what is, I believe, the most well-developed program for adaptive tennis players in the United States at the moment as a tennis academy. So I feel incredibly, incredibly lucky that I just stumbled into this, this coincidence. And I now train there four, five, six days a week and I'm preparing for tournaments that, that are going on throughout the year, as well as working for the organizers of Paris Standing as we start to formalize the sport and build its maturity to the point where we can work with national governing bodies and hopefully broaden that to working with the ITF and ultimately taking it to the Paralympics and the Grand Slams, which will be a process that will take many years, but we're starting to put the foundations in place now. Very impressive, Nikki. I don't know how you're doing that while you're attending Johns Hopkins, right? Is there time to study? <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I've, we'll have to, we'll see how my grades come out at the end of the semester. <laughs> the, the, the proof may be uh, somewhat in the pudding on that one. While we're still on the tennis topic, I should talk a little bit about the U.S. Open. Sure, sure, of course. The USTA has been, which is the U.S. Tennis Association, has been really, really supportive of adaptive tennis. And they took an amazing step earlier in the summer by deciding that they were going to put on an exhibition for para standing tennis at the U.S. Open this year. And the director of, I believe her title is the director of inclusion for the USTA, Andrea Sneed, reached out to JTCC and came across myself and my playing partner, Ken Rodriguez, who's a, a US Navy veteran, who's also an amputee. And alongside two other players, Danny Scrivano, who's from Michigan, and Keegan Ratliff, who's from Texas. All of us either amputees or Danny has cerebral palsy. And Andrea pulled us together and we put on a, an exhibition doubles match at the US Open playing on Arthur Ashe, which is the, the center court there. It was an unbelievable experience. And I feel very, very lucky personally to have been there. But also, I think we all felt the same way that this is 
you know, we just happened to be in the right place, at the right time, the four of us to be the players on the court and to be able to, to represent a sport, which has hundreds of players around the world playing at an extremely high level and to feel like we're really at the vanguard of a movement and a sport that we hope and believe will become a accepted and standard modality of the game at the really highest levels and all the way down to the grassroots. It just felt like an amazing, amazing moment, an amazing opportunity to promote something like that to the world. Another trailblazing moment, huh? <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Uh, we're going to love to see where this is going to go. But um, back to sort of a little bit what you do, I guess, seems like school is maybe a hobby. <laughs> I, it's a question of framing, maybe. I am in getting close to finals right now, so I think it's going to become less of a hobby, more of a permanent activity for the next few months. My program is the Master of Arts in International Relations at, like I said, Johns Hopkins. SICE is the, the name of the school. I feel very, very happy in this program. It's the other major area of my academic or professional interests that I have pursued is has been in the, the world of politics and it's not somewhere that I've I've worked it's certainly something that I feel very motivated by and a lot of the issues that I have talked about relating to the disability community and disability sport have levers for change if you want to really affect change on a big scale in in our politics and having lived outside of the UK for most of the last decade I, I'm not sure how politically engaged your listeners are, but it's been a slightly turbulent time in the UK. And watching that from afar has been quite difficult at times and feeling like I am watching a country that I really, really care about and feel very, very tied to move from one challenge to another and often crises that it seems a, a quite avoidable and maybe self-inflected has been has been difficult and certainly has made me feel more and more politically engaged. And so I reached a point in my, my work a few years ago where I, I'd studied psychology as an undergrad, which I was very interested in, but wasn't really applying to my, my career and felt like I wanted to study something that was a little more relevant to government policymaking, potentially as a means to getting involved in in British politics or in the maybe in the civil service. So I, I took on this degree. I'm in my second year now, all being well, I will graduate in May next year. And at that point, I'm weighing up my, my options about whether or not I will, will end up moving back to the UK or if I have the opportunity to continue contributing to the disability community in the United States as well. Great. The future holds a lot of really great opportunities. And I wanted to just step back a little bit and say, how did you get interested in sports to begin with? As you know, I'm sure it didn't just happen starting college. Well, I, I, it's funny. I think often it seems to happen with people with disabilities that the idea of playing sports, being involved in sports is seen as a, a really active decision of overcoming adversity and, and choosing to to head off challenges i i think actually it's much more prosaic than that in the uk you're required to do sports as part of school 
my parents had a choice at an early stage about whether they wanted me to go to to mainstream schools or whether they would find a way to put me into something more separate for for students with disabilities and they were very clear that they just wanted to put me into to normal school and and have me go through the the normal education in the the system and so it really wasn't until my late teenage years that I became aware that there was anything vaguely unusual about me playing sport. And so I, you know, from as long as I can remember, I would be at sports day, whether it was doing egg and spoon races or getting involved in, in running or playing tennis with my parents or playing rugby was my, my really my first love and as a player and playing team sports like that. So it feels like I look back and my there was never really a, a specific moment where I decided actively that I was going to to be involved in sports, but I just I love it. I think the the challenge of, of training and the process of feeling yourself working at something over an extended period of time, getting better and better, hopefully, sometimes getting worse. And the opportunities of competing, playing team sports, playing, you know, the, the sense of, of bonding that you get with with your friends and the people around you is, is pretty unmatched compared to, to what the other, the other parts of my life. And I, I think it's just been an amazing, amazing thread that has run through so much of what I've done over the years. It's interesting to reflect on it now. I don't see to be honest, a really clear junction where I decided that that was the way it was going to be. It just has happened very organically. That's great. It seems what you said something powerful that you just always didn't see yourself differently, which is quite impressive, right? You, you, it sounds like you just didn't notice that there was any other way. Is that right? Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. And I think I owe, so it would be wrong and incorrect for me to attribute that to myself to be honest that's that's so much of the environment I was raised in the decisions my parents made the way that they chose to make sure that I never really had an opportunity to consider it as as different or or unusual and so in that sense you just you're a product of the people around you and I've been very very lucky as well that the nature of my disability is such that there are very very few aspects of quote-unquote normal life that I'm not able to find a way to do and to find a way to involve myself in. I fit quite easily still into the world as it is, whether that's because I've had great access to prosthetics, great doctors who've, who've helped me understand what how to adapt and how to move through different challenges I might face, or sports coaches who were ready to include me in a team or find a way to, uh, to accommodate me in the training all of these are, are traits which I have been the beneficiary of and I recognize as well for people with other forms of disability, that might well not be the case. So I get to to say these sorts of things and have this perspective in part because of accidents of luck, basically. So I'm very sensitive to there's within the disability community, I have my own perspective, but that is quite hard to generalize to a lot of other people and, and experiences it's there's there's i think a lot more diversity within the disability community than 
even I realized a few years ago as I've continued to work more in this world. I'm sure there's something in a mindset that you probably don't realize that you have, but you have a very strong mindset. <laughs> but I, I wanted to see, is there any anything that you want to share with us on different challenges that you had to go through? Is there anything that you can think of? In terms of specific challenges, I think it's interesting. So much of the the path that I am finding myself reflecting on now is the product of decisions made one by one by one. When I first came to the United States, I didn't think I was going to stay here for more than the four years of college. And when I left college, I didn't think I was going to stay in the US for more than a couple of years of work. Now I'm in graduate school and now it's been eight years and my girlfriend lives here and all of my friends are here. And so I think the quote unquote challenge of spending time a long way away from home and building a life in a, the other side of the world has been very formative for me. But I also think that to the point I'd made earlier about growing up with a disability and not seeing yourself as, as in any way different. I think that it's easy to look back and say the path that you've chosen was was chosen with a long strategic view and actually so much of where I found myself has been yes through through hard work and through having amazing people around me but also quite a lot of accidents of good luck and finding myself in the right place at the right time I'm I think I'm not really answering your question at all about challenges but <laughs> that that's what that's what came to mind so no you did you're and i mean maybe it was coming to the u.s but i do want to go back to this idea of good luck i mean i, I feel like there is some effort in good luck well so let me tell you an, an anecdote that i think is is illustrative of, of both what i'm saying and and your more generous interpretation maybe so my first job out of college i was a, a management consultant i worked at a company called boston consulting group And I did that for just under two years. And when I was in my second year there, if you're doing well at the company, they open up opportunities for externships. So they'll send you on loan to another company. And I was starting to think about this. It was during COVID. It was in 2020. And I was feeling a bit fed up with my work and wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And a company-wide email went out saying, we are looking for somebody for an externship with a disability sports charity. Ideally, the candidate would be a second year employee with an interest in disability sports. <laughs> and as a second year employee with the background that we've been talking about, I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, that does sound pretty interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and I, this company is called Achilles International. And I went on to have what has got to be the easiest job interview of my life with the CEO of the company, Emily Glasser, who's an amazing, amazing woman and one of my, my favorite people and definitely a, a professional mentor of mine. And uh, Emily and I in, in the interview basically talked about my background and talked about what an amazing place Achilles is. And Achilles, to give a little bit of background for you, is a a charity which has been around since the 1980s was founded by someone called Dick Traum, who was the first amputee to run the New York City Marathon. Originally, it was the Achilles Track Club, which was 
basically Dick and his friends and people that he wanted to train with going around running in, in Central Park. And it grew into an organization which is global now. And Achilles International has chapters in 20 plus cities around the US and I believe another 20 to 30 around the world. And Achilles is based on this model of taking people with any form of disability across all of the different micro classifications and categories that we divide ourselves into. And based on that person's needs and what they would like, pairing them up with a partner and helping them work out, basically helping people, whether it's run, whether it's roll, whether it's walk, whether it's learn to move again after an accident, Achilles will will meet you wherever you are and will train able-bodied volunteers to to help you along that way. And it's a, an amazing organization, a group that I'm, I'm still very close to. And I went to work there originally as Emily's director of strategy. And then I left BCG and became the, the chief of staff there. So I love that job. It was amazing working there. And certainly I put in a lot of hard work to get to a point where that that opportunity came my way and then to hopefully do well with Emily and, and do good for the organization. At the same time, it would be <laughs> nuts if I didn't acknowledge just how fortunate it was that that job opportunity at that time in my career and in my personal life was just a, appeared at the right moment. Can't be described as anything other than luck to me. So I think you you need both, and I feel I've got to lean towards the luck on, on on some of these if I'm diagnosing how I got here. Well, it does sound like luck, and then the opportunity sounds like luck, and then you took that opportunity, which takes great will and an openness to take those opportunities. So on to what would you share with other people like you who – Do you have any sort of words of wisdom or any advice for somebody who was young and maybe had the same, maybe a para-athlete or? So I think in answer to that, I would say a lot of the decisions I've made in the past have have not really been with that much of a long-term lens on them. I've made choices with basically the approach of following my nose and have been really lucky that they've they've led to, to where I am today. But I think that when you're choosing, at least with that perspective, it's very hard to second guess yourself. Because if, if you're making your choices with a mindset of what does this outside party, this university, this company I'm applying to, even other people in your life, what do they want to see? If you're ever asked to explain those choices, you're either going to have to come up with some other justification or you're going to have to say because it's what I thought you wanted to see and if the choice doesn't work out and you don't get to where you were hoping to be you're looking back with a sense of well I didn't even get the short-term benefit of it I didn't even do it because it, it made me happy along the way and in that sense I, I would really encourage anybody who's facing choices about where am I trying to get to in my life? What am I What am I hoping to achieve? It's so much more fulfilling to choose on the basis of 
this is what I find most meaningful. This is what makes me happiest right now. This is what is going to be most fulfilling for me and the people around me. Uh, I think that taking that approach is, is really powerful and that applying it to sport specifically, I mean, firstly, if you are a person with a disability, I would encourage you no matter what age, whatever, no matter what type of disability you have to get involved in sport. If there is an Achilles chapter in your area, have a look, go to www.achillesinternational.org, look up and see if there's a chapter in your area. That's my, my shameless plug. But I think also sport has, it doesn't have to be competitive sport. It doesn't have to be going and trying to make it to the Paralympics. The, the benefits for your health, for your coordination, for your balance, if you're recovering from an injury, you can develop a whole new level of, of function and day-to-day comfort in your life from being involved in sport. And beyond that, I think it, it can build so many qualities that generalize to, to other parts of your life as well. And that applies not just to somebody with a disability, but I, I think especially within the the disability community there's there's so much benefit that i personally i know that i would not be anywhere near where i am today and would not have had a sliver of the opportunities i've had if it weren't for being chucked into sport without much per se in the matter when i was five or six years old and now finding myself as somebody that loses sleep over the philadelphia eagles and liverpool on the weekend so (laughs) there's a lot to be said for for the impact that it's had on my life as well Well, so that shows i think a lot of confidence and following your intuition i don't know if that's the right word for it yeah i think so i think something interesting maybe for parents you know would be really just start your children off young with sports that that may help them and also do you have any other life lessons that you would like to share I feel a little bit presumptive as a 26-year-old offering too many life lessons. I think maybe related to that, though, if you're looking at people older than yourself and at the next stage from wherever you are, you know, if you're in school and looking at friends around you who are going off to college, or if you're in college and looking at people who are going out into the working world, or if you're in a job and you're looking at people who are on their second or third job or have been promoted a couple of times, and believing that when I'm in that stage, these puzzles that I'm working on or these senses of insecurity or being unsure of how to be or what decisions to make is just going to be resolved, you're, <laughs> you've got it wrong. And if I sound at all assured in this conversation, like I have a, a strong sense of where I'm going and why, that's also riddled with self-doubt and lots of senses of uh maybe i'm i'm just spewing out advice that nobody should really be paying much attention to so (laughs) i i hope this is helpful but i am i would say have a have a big sense of uh of skepticism about anybody who thinks they've they've really got it all figured out oh thank you nikki there's a lot of wisdom in that there's i mean there's a lot of wisdom in what you said about anybody who's older and doesn't and seems to know what they're doing and also the wisdom of just following your intuition. Whereas I feel that a lot of people don't do that and don't even know how to connect to that intuition. So thank you so much, Nikki.
And this was really great. And really, I feel very honored to have interviewed you today. And I look forward to hearing about all the different feats you have in your future. It's been an absolute pleasure, Hannah. And I really hope that we can do this again sometime. Of course. Thank you. This is the Global Youth Matters podcast. We hope you'll subscribe or follow us at Apple Podcast or your favorite pod platform. We would really appreciate it if you leave us a positive review, especially on Apple. This helps us build an audience. Finally, we want to hear from you. You can reach us by email at globalyouthmatters at gmail.com. We'll see you next time.